Welcome listeners to a brand new bonus episode of Oh My Word Podcast. And today we've got a special, unique, oddly weird treat because today we are going to be speaking to comedian and author Brad Goss. Brad, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited and wary to have you because who knows what kind of adventure we're about to go on. But just to kind of set the scene, so comedian, how did that even... What does one have to go through in their childhood to become a comedian? <laughs> a lot. You know what? It, it, I mean, I only did it late in life. I sort of started off as an entrepreneur and, and I've only been doing this for about three years. But for me, it, the turning point was I was doing a lot of speaking at conferences for my business and I took a stand-up course at uh, Second City in Toronto. I had to do a five-minute open mic and that was the first time I'd stood up in front of an audience and my only goal was to entertain them. I didn't have any data. And it was so freeing. It felt so good. I realized that day that, that this is what I was meant to do and kind of spent a few years divesting myself from different businesses and making it possible. And then uh, about three years ago, I decided to go full time. So you're, you're living the dream now. That's right. Oh, hooray. So it wasn't, it was, oh, he's the funny kid. He's going to end up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was that kid, but I chased money when I was young. Comedy's easy now, right? When I was in my 20s, I would have had to go to clubs and fight for open mic slots and all that kind of stuff. Now I just, I'm in my basement and I do my thing and I don't have to, like the technology has just made it easy for me to do it. I don't think I would have done it in my 20s. Oh, that's a good point. Because also a lot of travel and all that kind of stuff involved also. Yeah, I mean, that part I could have dealt with, but I'm not good at asking people for things. So being a stand-up comedian at an open mic and trying to get slots at comedy clubs, you're constantly begging producers for time slots. You're, Can I come tonight? We have sp- space for me. I can't ask somebody for something more than once. That's why I was never a good salesperson, you know, cold caller or whatever. Like if you don't respond to me or you say no, the transaction's over in my mind, you know? And so I just, I would never have been good at that because I would have had to chase it too hard and I'm not a chaser. Okay, well, so you say you're not a chaser, but... So social media, part of social media, and this is something that all authors, well, all people, you can say all creative types, well, I guess everybody also, but especially people who are trying to build some sort of platform with it. Do you not have to be some sort of chaser of social media or do you just have to be consistent? How does that help you if you're just putting it out into the ether or it's just good because you're building a p- portfolio? Do you kind of see what that question well, is? Well, I'm not, the difference with social media is I'm not chasing a person. I'm not begging for a time slot or a attention or a moment, I'm uploading something. I'm doing something here in a vacuum, my basement, and then I upload it and it either takes off or it doesn't, but I don't have to have any conversations with any people, which I'm an introvert. I'm not a go out there and talk to the people kind of a person. I'm a stay in my house, make them laugh. You know what I mean? So for me, it doesn't feel like chasing. It feels like testing. It feels like I get to tell you a joke I get to upload it and social media will tell me whether or not it's funny based on how many views and comments and whatever that it gets. And everything else is just dead weight. I figure out the jokes that don't fly very quickly by uploading them. There's no one-to-one relationship. There's no conversation that happens. I can choose to engage in comments or not, but I don't have to have conversations I don't want to have. That's very true. So are you still doing stand-up and then you kind of use, you'll take what works really well or something and try it? Or this is, no, this is your comedy like outlet, I guess. Or I do stand-up as well at clubs. I read my books usually. Okay, so let's let's actually talk about those books for a second because, wow, if this would be the other part of the podcast, all the pearls would be clutched and bursting and like all over the place on those books <laughs> that are quote-unquote kids' books. I saw also that you did sort of a... Uh, uh, what's the word for it? that? That you went out there to say like, "Hey, we want to get like feedback on these books," and you pretended. Oh to yeah, just... the fake focus group. Yeah. The, yeah. Oh, the focus group. Which, first of all, that look that you had going on with the flat hair and the glasses was just—it was great. <laughs> and then you see how you start off with your first book, 
quote unquote your kids book that's like race cards and everyone's like race cards that's great for kids or you start reading it and then all of a sudden you're like soon at a book that's about when daddy's drinking he beats everybody and then everyone's like i don't know if that's a kid's book <laughs> where did that even come from i gotta read books this is what i gotta do i used to have a clip art company and called Vector Tunes. And I, I made a Facebook ad one day that was a fake children's book cover. And the Facebook ad basically said, you can do anything with Vector Tunes, even children's books, but it wasn't a children's book. It did really well for me on social media with my friends. And so I decided to turn that into a book of covers just for fun. I made up 99 fake children's book covers and I made them all in like a weekend because I just used clip art and I, you know, I'm a quick designer and I published it and a few friends and family bought it, a few strangers bought it, but it didn't really do that well. And then, uh, I don't know, about six months later, I started my TikTok account and I was trying all these different things and they weren't really working. I wasn't getting a lot of traction. And then one day I just made a video and I said, my name's Brad Goss. I write books for children, but my publisher keeps rejecting them. And I flashed one of the covers and it was why daddy hits mommy. It took off. The video took off and the comments from everybody were the same. Read us the book. And I hadn't written it. It was just a cover, right? It was like, oh, this they want me to keep this joke going. I thought I was done. So I wrote the book and then I, and I held up the cover and I read the book because I didn't have the pages illustrated. And that took off with the, just me reading the rhymes. And then the comments said, show us the pages. Where are the pages? And that's when it hit me that I needed to publish the books, make them available then show them to you on the on TikTok. And so I did that. I published the book and then I showed it to everybody and I said, it's available on Amazon and it started selling and it sold well. So the formula became take one of the covers that I had created, turn it into an actual book, flesh out the pages, publish it, order a copy for myself, then read it to you so that I could show you the whole book. That's going to get me views. That's going to build my social profile and hopefully build some tangential book sales from the virality of the content, which works. And so fast forward today, I have 97 books, three years later. Wow. Just from a technical point of view, how long did it take you to write out any of these books? Was it just something that kind of like, well, because I can write whatever, you know, I'm just going to throw the words down and, and who cares? takes about an hour. Once I have an idea, if I'm making a book out of clip art, it takes about an hour because I have access to the library. It's very easy to kind of find what I need. That's designing and laying out the book. That's the words written and that's the export done. And then, you know, maybe another 15 minutes to upload it to Amazon and it's published the next day. Oh, wow. There's picture book writers screaming somewhere. You spend an hour on these books. So all the art illustration, whatever we'll call it, that's all just straight up clip art that you're using for it. You, you didn't go to anybody else to put that together or anything. It used to be, but now I sold that business. So now I have a full-time cartoonist who does all my art. So my new books in the last sort of year or so have been custom art. But before that, they were mostly clip art. Some of them were custom because I just couldn't some ideas were not sitting in clip art, a lot of the character type books or whatever. So, but now all the books are, are custom drawn. And then where do you go to with land on design or whatever? Are you doing that through Amazon also? Or are you doing that through somewhere else and then just uploading the finished design to Amazon? I do it in an app called Comic Life on my Mac. There's a PC version as well. You can put any page size in that you want and it exports a really good quality PDF with vectors in it that Amazon likes. So I did all my designs in like a $30 layout app. Again, there's children book illustrator somewhere screaming into, wow, that's crazy. You don't have to overthink it. You have an idea, you can publish it faster than you think you can. And I would rather publish 10 ideas quickly then work really hard on one and have it not work out. If I publish 10, I know what's going to work out and what isn't. 
Well, have you had one that you've read for your TikTok audience or whomever that kind of bombed and you're like, well, that one's not going to print? Well, no, they all go to print because they're all self-published. It cost me zero to put them up with Amazon. If nobody buys them, nobody buys them. They're still listed. They all sell. But I would say out of 97 books, about half of them are killing it. The other half are just kind of sitting there. Oh, wow. Who's buying? I don't say who's buying, like, who buy these books? But like, is it like a younger audience? Do you actually see parents who are kind of like, I'm going to read these in secret kind of, or like all kinds are buying them? It's all over the place. It's kids. It's I have a huge Gen X audience, you know, sort of my age. I have a millennial audience and then I have kind of a Gen Z, like 13 to 25 audience that loves my stuff. So for me, it's it's kind of all over the place. There's sort of pockets in different groups that like what I'm doing. So I've been lucky there not, not to just hit one demographic. Yeah. Or any of the people like, let's say, for example, you know, why does daddy hit mommy kind of book? Which each time I'm saying it, I'm kind of like, I can't believe these words are coming to my mouth. Do you kind of get also just some people who just appreciate the dark humor or some people who are like, oh, I grew up in this house and it's, they developed the dark humor because of that. I think it's both. You should see how many people slide into my DMs and they're like, I have a book idea. And then they go into some specific thing, you know, and I'm just like, okay, we'll slow down here. Like, I'm not your therapist. Don't trauma dump in my inbox because a lot of people have been through a lot of things. And I think that resonates with like, I think you have to have kind of a messed up either personality or mindset or childhood to like the kind of humor that I put out. It's not for everybody, but I've always been the weirdest joke teller in the room. So it's not unusual for me. You have this thing with the Muppets and the politicians. That was funny. I saw that every time I was like, how did you come <laughs> up with that? Who sits around? Were you watching the Muppets first and then thought of the politicians? You watch the politicians and you're like, you know who he looks like? I saw the one politician and then just kind of went from there. It was like, once I had one, it was easy. Oh, there's got to be more. This is a gold mine. Yeah. Do you see that there are certain topics that everyone kind of agrees that they're happy for comedians to make fun of? Like politicians, for example, everyone's like, oh yeah, we don't really like them. Or is it just, nope. it really depends on who people are. Everything I do takes criticism. It does not matter. I could make fun of any anything. Every single topic, there is not a single video that ha doesn't have a negative comment. <laughs> They're all, every joke hits somebody the wrong way, especially when you make fun of a politician because it used to be okay. Right. But now, like used to be, we would watch TV and the late night guys would come on and they would make fun of whoever was in power. And we all laughed about it, even if we voted for them. Now they make fun of whoever's in power. They're like, well, he's right wing now, or he's left, you know, and it's like, and then they get mad and they're like, he doesn't believe in my president. And people just get to this place now where it's like, if I make fun of an Ontario politician that they want to vote for, I'm now their enemy. So even if I made fun of all of them, that doesn't matter. It's not good enough. You made fun of my guy or you, you punched down too hard at my guy or you're punched up too hard, whatever you want to say. So this is part of it. It's the internet. You're doing comedy. There's hecklers. That goes back to one of the first things you said that you could choose to engage in the conversation or not. So if someone's just heckling you, you're just like, whatever, next thing. Like I could just turn you off. Yeah, but I don't. I treat them like the human garbage that they are. The minute they come at me with the criticism, I fight hard and they don't like it. Here's the thing, right? A lot of my hecklers are like 14-year-old kids. I don't know that. You know, I'll argue with them until they seem stupid. And sometimes they'll say, you argued with me until you made me seem stupid. Usually when, they, when they've lost the argument, the last thing they'll tell me is, I'm a minor and you're bullying me. And then I'll be like, okay, we're done. I'm glad I won. Oh, that's terrible. You're in my house. You could block me anytime, anytime you want. You keep coming back here for the abuse. Don't don't play the I'm a minor card. It doesn't work with me. You're on TikTok. Your parents thought you were mature enough to handle it. Suck it up. It's one of the biggest things for authors where they're like, you never engage with anybody. Don't go there. It's going to ruin everything. But I guess as a comedian, you're already in a different 
level of society to begin with. So I treat them all as hecklers. If I'm in a comedy club and you heckle me, I'm going to make you look like a fool. Your date's not going to want to go home with you. So you do it on social media. I'm going to do the same thing to you. Wow. Way to go with the flow. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I recently spoke to someone who writes horror stories, like spooky for, for young kids. And she was laughing that horror writers are all like really nice people, but the comedy writers are actually really dark people. Yeah. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Well, I don't know any horror writers, but actually I shouldn't say that. I think I know, you know, a YouTuber, but I think you're right. I think most comedians kind of come from a bit of a darker place. You have to be willing to sort of find the things that you hate or find the things that you're willing to make light of that other people would never dream of touching, especially now, right? You can't be mediocre funny now. I love to use the name Bill Cosby. You can't be his level of humor, which was very clean considering the type of person he was. His humor was very clean because he had a dark soul Today, that doesn't fly. It's really hard to be a Jim Gaffigan. There's very few people who can kind of, even he's getting a little bit darker because he's finding that he kind of has to. We just live in a world now where shock has to, for me anyway, I'm not comparing myself to Jim Gaffigan because he's way more successful than I am, but I'm trying to break out. So I can't do that by being average. I have to be weird. And that's okay because I am weird. It would be disingenuous of me to be not weird. So you're not actually planning to write nice kids books is what you're saying. No. <laughs> I don't know how to break this to you, honey, but no. <laughs> Wait a minute. I'm not doing that now. Right. <laughs> Have you ever met an author and look at them like, oh, yeah, I write kids books too and totally just go with it and like, yeah, it's you know, what a great industry and da, da, da. Have you ever like pulled it on anyone? Um, Aside from the fake focus. Group. No, I haven't. Not that I wouldn't. I totally would. But I don't meet a lot of people. For the basement. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> it's so funny because it's still publishing as far as all that goes but it's just it's so different than groups that i'm part of that are like how do we make everyone feel good and happy and that you know how do we have nice moral stories and you're like Pfft. when you zig and everybody else is zagging you get noticed here's the thing right i've been in self-published author groups i've hung out with into some of the author conferences and stuff like that there are very few people actually selling books there are a lot of people working on projects and there are a lot of people who are still trying to figure out what they want to do when they grow up but very few authors actually sell books. The ones that do tend to be the ones that are doing things differently. And the other, the other sort of purist authors are scoffing at them like, oh, they self-publish or they do this or they do that. And they're turning their noses up at them, but they're selling circles around them. I sell a lot of books. And so anybody who's like a purist author who's going to scoff at what I'm doing probably isn't selling a lot of books. And if they are, then, hey, great. You've got time to look down your nose at me fantastic. So you said you went to self-publishing, you said at conferences or something, or what were you saying? I went to a, self, a self-published authors event in uh, in Vegas years ago. I can't, remember, I can't remember what it was called. I was, was like 100 or 200 people there or something. And people were very snobby and the attitude at the bar was very like, everybody was working on something, but nobody really wanted to talk about it. <laughs> oh, very top secret. Yeah. You went to just kind of pick up tips kind of thing. You're just like, hey, let me see what this kind of thing is about. Like what was your... I published my first book in 2012. It was a business book. Okay. And so I kind of always been interested in that world. I knew eventually I would have a big catalog of books. I just didn't know what they would be. Okay. So why did you publish the business book? What was the impetus for that? Because it doesn't sound the same as the other books. Actually, you'd be surprised. The business book was called was Chronic Marketer and had a cartoon of me smoking a joint on the cover. Okay. Maybe I'm not that surprised, actually. <laughs> I went after the pothead entrepreneur audience, which turned out to be huge in 2012. And um, I built a book for them. Wow. It's basically like the undercover book market almost, like that you're going oh, after. Yeah. Un- with- yeah, the underground book market. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah underground. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like 
if you guys want to pretend that like they're not a bunch of potheads, that's fine, but I'm going to write the book for them. And boom, look, they like it. Yeah. I used to go to conferences, business conferences when you know, I was in the internet marketing world or you know any of the industries that I worked in and the speakers would all go to someone's suite and start smoking or whatever. And I, and I always thought, nobody's talking about this. All the cool kids are here doing this and nobody's talking about it. What if I started speaking to them directly and they just woke up? The audience was huge. It was huge and nobody was advertising to them. So when you do that, when you go find a hungry audience that wants to be validated and you start to validate them with, hey, it's okay to have these two habits at the same time. You can be a serial entrepreneur and the audience woke up because it was so early and no, nobody was talking to them. And I just started. Why did the book come? Because people were like, oh, do you have a book with whatever you just spoke about? Or like, that was just a natural outgrowth of it. Uh, well, I knew I was going to write a book because I had been speaking. People were saying, oh, you should write a book. You should write a book. But I'm not a, I had to do it weird, right? So I did it weird. So that's where I went with it was I, I spoke to myself. I spoke to my own, my people. They're like, there were a lot of us out there. Who knew? Yeah, exactly. But then how did you write it? As in, did you have help with writing it? And you, or did you get a couple of people to check it out, to check it over? Like, assuming you didn't just have pictures in it. No, no, no. That was different. I dictated the whole book and then I hired a couple of people to edit it for me and look it through and see where it needed to be cleaned up. I'm sure it still has, well, I've, I've actually taken it off the market, but I'm sure it's still riddled with typos. But it was again, self-published it, and done in a weird fashion, but it worked. You didn't think ever to like, oh, I wonder if a bigger company will take it. Or you, like it wasn't even a thought or you just didn't even want to go there. You know what? I have knocked on the doors of some of the biggest publishers and some of the smallest publishers. I've knocked on the doors of literary agents. Like I do well with my books. Like my book royalties pay all my bills. Like I'm doing better than I thought I would do just on book royalties alone. And I have literally gone out and offered a percentage of money that's already coming in to people and they don't return my, my emails. Here's the thing. Why am I doing that? What am I doing that for? I own my audience. I own my distribution. Amazon takes care of everything for me. You order a book in Australia, it gets printed there and shipped out of there. I don't ever have to think about customer service. I don't have to pay back in advance. I don't have to deal with some publisher saying, we don't like you talking about that topic. I just make whatever I want, screw the consequences, and I just put it up. For me, that's actually the easiest path. But for some reason, I still feel like I need Simon & Schuster to sign off on what I'm doing to feel special. But I don't. I don't need them. You answered the follow-up question of if you have it all taken care of, why are you even going to them? Yeah, why bother, right? But there's a part of me that still thinks I need a publishing deal. Wouldn't it be nice if I had bookstore distribution? Wouldn't it be nice if I had... But then they're going to look at me and I know the two words they're going to say in every email response, even if they do get a chance to respond to me, they're going to use the words current climate. In the current climate, we can't exactly be publishing books like yours. And okay, great. Well, then... I'll do it myself yeah. and I'll keep all the royalties and, and, and it's working. <laughs> right. But I guess also, cause you have a very specific market because there is something about distribution. I'm with a smaller company. They distribute, but they don't have the size of distribution as a Simon and Schuster or something like that. Right. So right. there is something about knowing that your market's kind of the access to it is very different unless you somehow figure out a way to make it. Cause yeah, without it though. So what do you need it? Just so that other people won't be like, Oh, he's a fake author, but you wrote books. So. Outside of our world, Nobody knows what a self-published versus a regular published author is. And all you have to say now when you do social media is available on Amazon. That's it. Yeah. yeah. And most people have a Prime account. Amazon has your credit card number on file. With a couple of taps, you can have my book ordered and have it here tomorrow. So who needs a bookstore? in 2022? Not saying that they're not a good thing, but like very few people are going to discover me at a bookstore. 
They're going to discover me online. They're going to look for my stuff and then they're going to find my stuff. And then every time I come out with a new book after they buy one, what's going to happen? Amazon's going to email them and say, hey, you're going to like this one. And so I build an audience there and it's worldwide. I tap into this massive distribution network for $0. I upload a new book. It costs me nothing. It's live on every country tomorrow. Now I'm free to advertise it. You basically built the audience first and then gave them product. I did it at the same time. I did it together. I had you know very few followers when I had my first book. I built the following and, and the book catalog all at the same time. I had 1.1 million followers and 97 books. But when I had one book, I had 5,000 followers. That's great. Everyone tries to figure it out, but at the same time, everyone plays it safe as they try to figure it out. It's a trade-off, I guess. If you still want to have the Simon and Schuster or whomever publishing you, then you're not going to be able to do certain things. It's going to be much different to try to build a platform then. Yeah. I move fast and I break things. Sometimes, like, you know, a funny thing will happen to me where, like, I'll have a typo in a book and I'll read it to the audience and, and the comments will go nuts of the people telling me what I screwed up in the book. And then I'll fix the book. It's like I just crowdsourced my editing for free and I built my engagement because all the people who pointed out the typo increased the comment count on the video. People have to point out the things they see that are incorrect. You know how people are with typos. They see a typo. They want to, they got to tell you about it. And so I have books, you know, that had typos in them of the first edition. And then, oh, there's a typo. Okay. 700 people told me about it. I'll go fix it. And then I'll take one of their typo comments and I'll read, I'll say, hey, I fixed it for you. And I'll read the book again. Now I can read it again. And now you got two videos for the same book. Exactly. Wow. I'm both horrified and full of admiration at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I mean, good for you. I got to ask, I see in the back you've got, are, am I looking at uh, comic books in the back behind you? Yeah. It seems like a collection for the way you've got it set out. Can I, can I find about your collection? Yeah. What about it? Well, what, what kind of collection have you got? It's just all like comic book stuff, life-size busts of the Hulk and Venom and, and a bunch of comic books that, you know, I collected comic books when I was a kid and then I sold them all. And uh, when I got older, I was like, I'm going to start buying them again. But it's really just to have a background for YouTube. Like it's just kind of, I'm like, oh, I need something interesting behind me. Why not buy things that interest me the most? Is it a particular years that you focus on? And I'm asking- no. Oh, no, okay. So just anything you'll collect if it's in good- uh, Whatever, or- usually it's what, it, like I almost buy them- for the art on the cover. If I like the cover, it's signed and I can get a deal on it on eBay or something, then I'll usually buy it. But it's usually because I like the cover or I read the book when I was a kid. I spoke to someone a couple, a little bit ago that he specifically collects like golden age comic books. Oh yeah. So for the yeah. 40s, that's why I, was, I wondered if there was something like that. See, look, you have in your early days, you had pictures and words together. It was, it was destined. Yeah, I've always been into that kind of a thing. Collected Mad Magazine when I was a kid and I like lowbrow humor and men in tights. When you're writing the books and considering the brain of a comedian, this dark place of the brain of the comedian, and when you're actually writing a book, are you approaching writing a joke and writing the book? It's basically the same thing for you. It's just the book is like an extended joke. Is that kind of the way you're looking at it when you do that? No, because most jokes are observational. The books are much more sort of story-based. The books sort of rhyme you through a story that gets illustrated. A joke is more, have you noticed some kind of story with a punchline. It doesn't always have the same kind of flow, but I do more books than jokes. So most of my jokes are my books. Like I go to clubs with books and I might tell a couple jokes, but at some point the books come out and that's when the audience starts to laugh is when I start to read them the children's books about polyamory or whatever. They're just like, oh my God. Oh God. You saw them at the club then also or you saw them go on Amazon and find them? I don't even tell them they're on Amazon. I just, I just do the bit. I try not to sell that hard when I'm out. What am I going to do? drag a bunch of merch with me and try and sell 97 books. I'm going to try and bring three copies of each to a, oh, yeah. it's just too much. Right. So I just do the bit. And if I go to a comedy club, I always try and film 
the routine so that I can use it on social. Right, yeah, that's a good point. It's like when they talk about how celebrities and people like that, what social media did is that you could talk directly to them. So you're doing that in like the marketing way. You don't go anymore to the marketing company to build a whole ad for you. You just go straight to the people and you just, you just hope that the magnet effect or something is going to work. I share 100% of my content. Sometimes people say, why would I buy the book? You just read it to me. And I say, don't. Right. But then if a video of me reading a book gets 6 million views, then a thousand people will buy that book. And that's where I make my money. I'm not going to get 6 million people to buy it. I'm going to get 6 million people to watch me read it and remember me. And maybe a thousand people to buy the book, and then I repeat the process. Crazy. I'm supposed to like be processing information past this, but I'm so stuck on that. <laughs> like he makes it sound so easy, but the rest of us are busy like slogging through the trenches of like it is easy when you know how to do it and you template your process and you repeat. The first book didn't take an hour, the first book took a couple hours. You know, now they take 45 minutes to an hour, but it, it comes with just saying, I'm gonna get as much done as I can rather than try and have these perfect things that you do once a year. I go through periods where I publish two books a week. Wow. You know, the ideas are just flowing and the work comes out. And then I go through periods where I'm just not. Sometimes I'll go like a month without doing any. But when the ideas are there, I, I crank them out and I don't have a filter and I don't waste any time getting them out. You said your first one that you kind of did as a joke had 99 covers, but you got 97 books. So does that mean you got two more from that original or you, you're not even following that anymore? I'm not following that. A lot of the ideas there were just funny as covers, but couldn't necessarily be fleshed out. The seed of, of some ideas is in there, but a lot of the new books now are completely separate from that idea. It's again, it's like this mixed feeling of like, we want anyone who writes a book to be very successful. Well, what on earth are you writing? <laughs> well, They're written, but they're low content. They're low content books because there's very few words on a page but there's pictures. So people are buying them as, as jokes. They're 10 bucks, so they're cheap. That's true. Do you think also the rhyming of it kind of like lends versus, like did you even think to not rhyme it or it just comes out as rhymes? Because there's actually like a thing now in kids publishing that they're trying to move away from the rhyming style. Even though you still get it a lot, but they're like, you know, we're moving on from rhyming now. But I don't know, does that lend to, to the comedy kind of? Like when you have the rhyme, because it's kind of like we can all chime in together sort of thing. I think it lends to the comedy, but I also think... The idea that we're moving away from rhyming is kind of silly. If you're writing actual children's books, they're going to remember the rhymes. They're not going to remember it if it doesn't rhyme. We're trying to get away from it, but really, you're reading to a three-year-old. Are you really concerned about whether or not it rhymes, or do you want a good story that they can be glued to? For me, it had to rhyme because I was just like, I'm writing this like Dr. Seuss. I'm going to write it in a Dr. Seuss style. I'm going to mix up words sometimes. I'm going to say things that don't make sense. So I'm going to do it like him because rather than saying thing, I can say think. I have a little bit more freedom when I'm rhyming. And it's just, I don't know, it's more fun to rhyme. Rhyming is like a, it's like an unofficial sing song kind of, right? Yeah. And as soon as there's something with music, it kind of automatically helps you either to get you in the rhythm of it better or it helps you remember things. Yeah. And it helps me remember because I've memorized every single book, right? So when I read them to people, I don't even have to look. I know exactly what's coming next. Do you just arbitrarily grab a bunch when you go to a club or you have your specific ones that you know are like, people love these ones? I pick them, yeah. And then there's usually some new ones built into the, the mix or whatever, but I usually pick, I pick the winners. And the live audience likes different books than the internet audience. What's one or two or three that people love these ones? My Racist Gran, Don't Bathe with Uncle Joe, Race Wars. Sex Toy Story, Dead Babies. I have five Dead Babies and I have a Dead Babies coloring book because Dead Baby was, was so popular that I'm like, okay, I'm going to make a coloring book and the coloring book sells better than the actual book. 
I made a joke. I was like, if you're looking for a baby shower gift, and then I kind of showed all the, the books. Because here's the thing. There are people out there right now having baby showers that want gifts like that. There's a small percentage of cool people who like Halloween that are having a baby that want that gift and will appreciate that gift. It's a small number of people. But if nobody else is making anything for them, then I get that sale. Holy canasta. Let's say, let's say, go ahead, coloring book. How do you create a coloring book? You this the images and then you just don't color it in? Yeah, I just took the same images and then made them black and white so that you could color into them. And they're the same images that I use in the Dead Babies books without the words. Now they're just outlines you can color. Okay, why on earth, honestly, and you're like, well, okay, this is popular, so I'm gonna make a coloring book. But I don't know that I would think, wow, this is popular, make a coloring book. It just made sense in your head to say that? Well, I see a lot of adult coloring books selling well. Yes. I'm all about repurposing. Even the words I write for my books, I have a music producer now. We're putting the electronic music up on Spotify with my rhymes to it. I'm repurposing the content everywhere I can. So if I can make coloring books, that makes logical sense. I already have the cartoons. It's easy to strip colors out of them and make a coloring book. And black and white books are cheaper than color books. I make a better profit on the coloring books. Why not? I had a book about killer clowns. So I did a coloring book for that. I also have an adult coloring book called Pimps and Hoes and Strippers and Blow. Oh, God. And then I have the dead babies coloring books. I feel like I can't believe I'm having this conversation. <laughs> so you're putting your books to music now, like an electric sounding nursery rhyme kind of thing. Yeah, it's like electronic dance music, but I'm not singing. I'm just reading the books. But it's like some someone's taken that and added like, you know, sort of a trancey house beat to it and made it cool. So we're publishing it now on all the music platforms. Just a nice little lullaby to listen to when you go to bed at night. Yeah, well, yeah, it's a little faster than that. It's more like racing your car kind of music, but I don't know. It's, it's different, right? And it's just, I want to be where everybody is. So if you're on YouTube, you'll find me there. You're on TikTok, you'll find me there. But I also want to be where you are on Spotify, where you are on Apple Music. I want to be on Amazon. I want to be wherever you are, I want to be. Well, that'll be interesting to see how that goes. Like if it's going to be your same people, if you're going to find new people with it. I mean, I guess you will because it's different people, but... Yeah, I think I found new people with the coloring books. You know, I think there's an audience that likes the rhymey books and then the coloring books is like a completely separate audience. And I'll just to randomly throw it in here before we kind of wrap up, as a general thing, do you ever like to read or you pick up kind of books or what kind of books besides for co uh, comic books you pick up or graphic novels? I like audiobooks. I'm dyslexic, so I'm not a very good reader, but I like books that challenge the way I think. So I like Malcolm Gladwell. I like a lot of, not necessarily self-help or motivational books, but sort of books that challenge the way you think or the way you see things, maybe books like Freakonomics or where they kind of like make you look at the world differently. I love that idea that you've got it all wrong and here's how you got to think about it. And, and even if it doesn't change your thinking, it kind of just opens your eyes to new things. So I like big idea kind of books, business, mindset type books. It's like the most normal answer I think you've said since like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little worried. I'm like, what else is I don't consume the kind of work that I create. It's like comedy, I like stand up, I like all that stuff, but I don't read dark humor books at all. It makes sense that people are multifaceted. It's actually interesting you said that because one of my audiobook narrators, she was saying that she got into it because her daughter's dyslexic. Her comprehension is totally there. So audiobooks were very good for her because then she can hear yeah. her stories and I never, I had never thought about audiobooks in that regard. I always thought of it like so people can listen to it as they're doing other things, but it makes so much sense when you hear it like that. Someone can't read really well. They have the audiobook, they get the full book. Duh. And I can only listen in the car. My eyes and my brain are, are focused on a task that I can kind of do on autopilot, but I can't look at my phone. I can't do anything else. I can't, that's the place I can concentrate because the ADD will kick in if I'm trying to listen to it, you know, at my desk or on the couch or something. Yeah. 
Oh, wait, 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 one more question. Yeah. Especially because you mentioned something about like observational comedy versus kind of like the books that you're doing or whatever. Are you going out there looking for jokes or you just got to like sit and just watching the world, the jokes are going to come to you? Or like how much, I have to know what's going on in the world today to like, you know, how much. The harder I work on trying to find them, I can't find them. But when I allow them to sort of settle in and come to me, that it's it's much easier. But they're everywhere. You have to be on the lookout for them, but if you actively look for them, they won't show up. It's a weird thing. You know, I see a lot of comedians that are like, I have to actively write jokes. I carve out a certain amount of time every day to do that. Like even Jerry Seinfeld said, I have a time. I sit down with my legal pad and my pencil and I write the joke. And I'm like, that's not me. I'm not wired to follow a schedule. I'm wired to just kind of do my own thing. So I find what happens is I have these creativity bursts. There might be two days where just jokes are flying out of me. Ideas are flying out of me. My notepads are full. And then another week where nothing's there. And that's when I can work on maintenance stuff. And so I embrace the bursts when they come. And I also embrace the, I feel like we always beat ourselves up when we're not productive. And when you have that creative block and you're stuck and you're like, no, I said I was going to write now. And I sit down and I can't do it. And I beat myself up over it. It's like, no, my brain is telling me now is not creative time. Now is recharge time. And so if you embrace that recharge time, you don't beat yourself up. You kind of let yourself be unproductive. That allows you to later be uber productive and prolific with what you do. And that's when the best work comes out. When you force it, you end up rewriting it anyway. When you're in that state where it's just coming out of you faster than you can make it happen, that's the best place to be. Okay, that's the most normal thing you've said the whole time. No, it's so, it is, it's true. <laughs> and and the audience can always tell something's forced. Even if you deliver yeah. it well, as a writer or speaking or whatever, like they just know that nah, I wasn't. Yeah, you phoned that in. Yeah, but I think like you said, the biggest thing is the permission. It's okay, now is not the creative time. Take a deep breath, you're fine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's good for us writers. But there's other people who have like writer's block. <laughs> it's not just us. I think any any artist, any creative person has writer, has block, right? There's times when it's coming out and there's times when it's not. That's true. Even though, like I guess you could say also, like salespeople, sometimes they're selling everything and sometimes they're not. So what do we call that? We don't call that writer's block or creative block. We just call it bad performance day or something. Yeah, that could just be, you know, whether or not you're in a flow state or in the zone, some people call it, but... You know, I guess it's different for everybody, but... Writers don't get cool terms like that. Like, I'm in the zone. Everyone's like, you're such a nerd. Stop it. But it's real. It, sometimes it's coming out of you like a fire hose. It's true. Very good. This was an interesting journey that we just took. But with all that said, I always wrap up with like a fill in the blank of I really like it when... And you could use anything for this. You could do books, writers, editors, publishers, uh, I don't know, covers even. You know, anything book related or storytelling related, I should say. Because you can use jokes, comedians, all that kind of stuff in there. So I really like it when X, and I really don't like it when X. So soapbox or off the cuff, how would you fill in the blank for that? I like it when authors narrate their own books. And I don't like it when they hire a narrator, because you can tell. So that, there's something. I really like it when authors are willing to do things outside the norm. I have purchased books because they were tiny. There was a sales book I remember buying at an airport once, and it was a little red thing. It was like you know, the size of like a, a little like clergyman's notepad or something. I remember thinking, this is the smallest book I've ever seen at the airport. I'm going to buy this because it's the smallest book I've ever seen. So I like it when people tried things nobody's tried and kind of break the mold. And I don't like it when they do the opposite, when they try and fit in and you see, it's like, oh, six by nine trade paperback and oh yeah, two-tone, uh, you know, cover and oh yeah, Helvetica font and oh, it's a picture of a piece of fruit, but it's a vegetable on the inside and oh, that. 
nuts creative. And if you do the thing that everybody's doing, it's so clear now. There's no blending in in 2022. So I hate it when people try to blend in so hard that, that they just end up sucking and then they're like, why didn't it work? Take a risk. Yeah, uh, totally random thing. Are you familiar with Brandon Sanderson? No. Okay. He's a massive writer in fantasy. And he did a, over the pandemic, I wrote four books, ta-da, magic. And everyone's like, wait, what? Because <laughs> he's writing, you know, epic fantasy. And then he did a Kickstarter campaign. And everyone's like, what? You're not going to do regular publishing anymore? And he's like, I am going to do regular publishing, but I have certain, I don't want to say beats or hangups about it. So this way I'm going to publish it my way. And he raised like... $36 million or something like an insane amount. And you're going to get certain packages and the covers are going to be artworks and you're going to get little blah, whatever. And I've been telling publishers to work like this and they don't. And so now I'm going to do it. And a lot of writers are like, you don't understand. He has the infrastructure to be able to do that. Over the years, he's built up this company and he could do the distribution. He could do that. But it's like when you're saying people do things a little bit differently and he's going to self-publish them, even though he's a massively published writer. So... Yeah, it's like crazy. Yeah. I think there's a lot of money to be made and a lot to be done for authors on Kickstarter. It's something that I'm looking at. I've done a Kickstarter in the past with another company that I had and I was successful with it. I tipped the campaign and I want to do it again. But I was actually thinking, how do I take, because I'm already doing books, how do I take that and go to Kickstarter? If you have something cool already and you turn it into like a game, like you know, to me, the, the best Kickstarter campaign was when the oatmeal did Exploding Kittens. He took his comic book audience, his, his humor audience, liked his weirdness, and he brought them to buying this card game that my kids love to play. It's weird and it's off the charts. To me, if I could create like a dead babies, murder clowns card game, I think that's where I would go with Kickstarter. I think I would take the ideas, but I see a lot of authors that are doing that where they're, they're raising the money. And I think a big part of it is if you can include people in your books somehow, that's the way to get them to pay a lot of money is to say, hey, I'm going to name a character after you. I'm going to I'm going to use your business, your town, your logo, your something in my book without making it cheap. There's a way to doing that. Yeah. Well, are you naming the killer clowns or the dead babies after people? Both. Oh, no. Why not? You know? Well, it is true. Some people say like Kickstarter does work or doesn't work. But I guess if you already have the audience, that's where you have to see if the transition can work. To give them something new. They, they don't bring you an audience. you got to bring your audience there. But if you make it small, if you make your goal small and you tip quickly, then you can go viral because then it's like, okay, this, this is fully funded. They're going to fulfill the orders. If you've never done it before and you do a small one and you're successful, then the second one will go really well because like I have one under my belt that's successful already. So if I go to do another one, they'll see, hey, he tipped his last campaign. He shipped all the orders because you see these people, they go on Shark Tank and they're like, oh, I did a Kickstarter. And they're like, why are you here? Because I can't fill the order. I need money now. So a lot of people never get their orders, but they paid the money. I've shipped a successful order out to people. So I have that reputation. You can see that I actually successfully did it. So if you start small, do something basic, do a $3,000 Kickstarter, you know, before you try and look for 300. So you basically build up your reputation with smaller campaigns, I guess. And then, and then you go, yeah, we're getting a lot of insight for someone who, who writes really warped children's books. <laughs> My business end is solid. Yeah. <laughs> you cannot like what someone's doing, but you can't argue with a successful business model. No. It's customers. What are you going to do? So go yell at the customers or something. You know? Exactly. Brad, I got it. Thank you so I had no idea how this was going to go. This is awfully fun. Thank you. Thank you. This was a bonus episode of Oh My Word podcast featuring comedian and author Brad Goss. To find out more about Brad and his work, please visit the link in the episode notes. To find out more about Oh My Word podcast and keep track of all the great stuff we're up to, follow us on Instagram at Oh My Word podcast or check us out at eltenemum.com. Music is by Tim Burke. Thanks so much for joining us. Catch you next time.